Hearing voices? I'm hearing voices. You're listening to Hearing Voices with Scott Watson. This morning on Hearing Voices with Scott Watson, a truly iconic broadcaster, we visit with the great Paul Page. The new book is called... It is called, Hello, I'm Paul Page. It's Race Day in Indianapolis. Let's talk a little bit about your career. How did your love of racing develop? Um, I was uh, I was a military brat, and so um, we, we traveled the world a little bit, and I had gone to a Formula One race when I was like 10 uh, at the Nürburgring in Germany, and I thought that was really cool. But then we got transferred, and I ended up at Fort Sheridan, Illinois, just north of Chicago, and my parents insisted that I go see the Indy, Indy 500. This is 1960, and I'm 15 years old. Um, I didn't want to go. Come on, I'm a Formula One guy. I don't want to see guys turn left forever. But they insisted. I went down. Um, my my uh, relatives, my great uncle Harry Geisel, uh, took me to uh, to the race. And before it even started, I knew I wanted to be part of it. Just the the crowd, the ceremonies, the traditions. And, of course, 1960 was just a killer race. Uh, Roger Ward, Jim Rathman, just, you know, changing changing positions every corner. Of course, they're only scoring at the start-finish line, so it doesn't necessarily show up that way. But the combination of all those things made me say, i got to be part of Indy. I didn't know how, but that's what I wanted to do. For so many of us that love racing, it's the cars or the technology or the sport of it or the personalities. What was that mix like for you? Well, um, I, I like the excitement of the race itself. I like the tactics of the race at you know that distance at 500 miles because uh, that's the only time in the season we race that distance, and that's a you get after 300 miles and it's no man's land. You never know where it's going to go. Technology, absolutely. Though when I first started started watching and becoming involved, the technology was uh, pretty rustic compared to what we have today. Um, you know, we, in fact, I, I worked, one of my ways of getting close to Indy was working at uh, uh, George Bignani's shop, and uh, I helped build a couple of the cars there. Now, when I say I helped build, I mean, I was, I was putting Clecos and rivets in, and, you know, just uh, do this a hundred times, kid. And, and But, it, you know, I was part of that, and that technology and and so i had a baseline and i just kind of kept that going and of course the drivers drivers were legendary right from the get-go you just uh they're they're incredible men and now i've watched actually i think three generations of drivers sweep through um and all of them are, are pretty remarkable in a number of different ways but it's, it was so cool that I could be accepted by those people and become involved. The new book is Hello, I'm Paul Page. It's race day in Indianapolis, and this morning on Hearing Voices, we visit with that iconic voice of Paul Page. You were in radio. What were your thoughts, though, about the IMS radio network, which many would consider the greatest radio network of all time? Well, if they don't need to consider it, it absolutely is. It's it's spectacular what was done there. Um, I, 
I would. I decided I really like radio. I like to. I like the technology of it, and I, you know, I like the idea that, uh, like at WIBC with fifty thousand watts, your your voice was going a long way, and um, I also kind of reveled into listening to radio stations, especially the clear channels across the country, and so radio. Uh, had a draw for me. Plus, I like music, so I decided I wanted to become a disc jockey, and we'll see where that goes. Well, I had two disc jockey jobs. Uh, one of them, the station went automated two weeks after I was hired, and the other one had a change in format just after I was hired. So I'm looking around, and I go to WIBC just to see if they have anything, and it's uh, no you know, on-air personnel. They definitely got we got some really great guys here, but we do need somebody in the newsroom. So I said, I'll take it, I'll take it. And only after a couple of weeks there do I realize that um, Sid Collins is the sports director at WIBC. And I was just hoping to uh, learn from him and, and, and hopefully show off my skills enough that he might consider me for the radio network. Well, it went on for a number of years where um, he would talk. Uh, he actually taught me how to interview and gave me a, a lot of tips, but he'd always say, but there are no openings on the radio network. And that didn't actually happen until 1977 when he brought B Jerry Baker and I in and told us both we were going to be on the network. I was going to be in the North Pits, which uh, amounted to the garbage pits. But it did mean that there are a lot of cars uh, out early, so you get a lot of interviews up there. So it, it, it all worked. We visit with Paul Page this morning on Hearing Voices with Scott Watson. The way that you broadcast racing has changed since 1977. What are the biggest changes? Well, um, when I when I became the uh, anchor for the 500, taking over from Sid, um, the race as as Sid had developed it was pretty much in past tense. And that is to say something would happen in the corner. The announcer couldn't put himself right on the air. He and his engineer had to communicate with the control room who would communicate then with the producer who would then write on a three by five card, you know, crash turn two and Sid would go to it. And I wanted to get rid of that and I did. There were new, more modern technical facilities available to do that. So I, I created a system wherein um, I could push a button on my console and it would take me off of the air, but it would put me on direct to all of the announcers and the turns. And then the reverse of that, if the announcer had something, uh, they could tell me in my ear because uh, I could hear them uh, very much like the IFB works in television. So all I had to do was, was say, uh, you crashed turn two, you know, or whatever. And we could go, we, we'd be there instantly. I'd say, here he is, kind of thing. The new book is. Technology. Of, of radio itself, uh, especially in the wireless mic area, um, the you know, we when I started, we were lugging around these big, I'd say four by five by eight inch uh, transmitters, uh, wireless mic transmitters, just to get on the air. And uh, now, you know, it's, it's kind of smaller than an iPhone, so it's there's a lot of changes. He is the longtime chief announcer for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network. Also, you've enjoyed his work on ABC television. We'll have more with Paul Page tomorrow morning on Hearing Voices.
This morning on Hearing Voices with Scott Watson, we continue our visit with Paul Page. The book is Hello, I'm Paul Page, and it's race day in Indianapolis. Paul, what is the greatest moment of your broadcast career? Uh, that requires some thinking. Let me say, though, at, at this point, the book is available at the Speedway uh, gift shops and on Barnes & Noble uh, on, their, on their website. So, uh, greatest moment. And, you know how do you how do you actually look at that? I've obviously been asked that before. And is it my personal moment or the greatest moment on the track that I witnessed? You know how how do you actually approach that? And I would say that um, that my my first time on the air, which is 1977 as the anchor, and. AJ Foyt won his fourth. That that was my greatest moment. That you know, it, it, the whole month had uh, had worked out. We had had a lot of things we had to learn and do, but but I uh, I got through it, and I think I got through it without embarrassing myself. Uh, but um, then to have a four-time winner and have that guy be AJ Foyt, the first four-time winner. And at that time, the winner's circle was right in front of the control tower, which is where we were. And uh, so AJ's pulling up down below, right, you know, right in front of me. I can see the whole ceremony and everything. It's just really cool. That was that was my greatest moment. There were other really incredible moments, but that's my all-time greatest. Do you have a biggest regret as an announcer? Mm, that, now there's one I haven't been asked. Um, Yeah, in a in a it's in a way, it actually was going going to television because I I love radio I love that radio network I love what the radio can do for you uh, you know the the theater of the mind um, but I was working at NBC Sports uh, I left WIBC for that and. Uh, that worked out because NBC didn't have the race, so I could do a lot of other sports and did, and centered up on motor racing. Um, and then, so I had no conflict with the radio network in the 500. But then, when ABC took over, um, they came to me and they said, we we want somebody who really understands racing. And uh, had two, uh, two years uh, live when they first went live. and. They didn't go all that well, and, and even uh, even uh, Mary George at the Speedway said, you really ought to go take that. Well, obviously, it was a great moment and a great thing, and I think I did a lot of good things with it. It's an entirely different form of announcing, but in both the radio and television, my approach was show them your passion. You're sitting in a grandstand alongside these people, and you're telling them what's going on. Show them how much you love it. And so that worked in both areas. He is the great Paul Page. He visits with us this morning on Hearing Voices with Scott Watson. You mentioned being there when A.J. Foyt won his first, or rather his fourth. There are now four four-time winners. Is it possible to rank the four greats? Well, let's try. Um, A.J., because he did it first. Um, Rick just because he was such an awesome, awesome driver and could just come back from anything. 
Um, and he had the greatest pit crew in the world going. Uh, so that'd be my, my number two. Um, number three would actually be Elio. Um, I, I do a little bit on radio, on a radio network every year during the race. And, uh, uh, so I was able to look right down on the start finish line from the, uh, broadcast booth. And that just, that, those laps, of, last laps of the race were pretty close to, uh, I think what I saw in 1960, they were just awesome. And, uh, Elio winning them, Elio is such a good guy and a good friend that I just, I was like, wow, this is so cool. You're making this easy. Of course. You're making this easy for me because you mentioned good friends. Racing is a dangerous sport where death is not often spoken of, but sometimes the reality. Did you get close to drivers, and was that a good thing or was that a mistake? Um, I did, and it was not a good thing. Um, I, I had more than my share of those kind of reports. Um, fortunately on the 500, we never had it in such a way at most races, you know, we didn't really know that they had passed until after the race. So, uh, while I had methods ready to deal with those kinds of things, I was ready to deal with it. Uh, I was only called upon like three times to actually do it in a racing competition. And, and one of those was a drag race. So, um, but I had. I, I really got close to a couple of guys, and uh, one of them uh, at, down in my career was Dan Weldon. And Dan, Dan and I had done a number of things together. We were having a good time. I like to play practical jokes on him. I think he liked to have them done. And actually, the uh, night before he uh, won us at the 500 for Rick Klein, we were at dinner. Uh, I'm, I'm talking now of Klein and Dan, and Rick is looking over at, at Dan and just he's studying them. And finally, Rick says, "Where'd that T-shirt come from?" And, and it's a Klein Tools T-shirt. And well, Dan says, oh, "This is our team T-shirt." He says, "No, no, no, no. There's something wrong there. That the logo is." And it turns out that Dan had a number of embroidered T-shirts made for himself. And he didn't like the size of the logo, so he made it a little smaller. But Rick caught him the night before the race, and he won the next day, so I think he was forgiven. <laughs> he is. That kind of closeness is dangerous. Um, I have my son Brian is a uh, a performance engineer at Andretti, and uh, he was particularly close to Dan too. And so uh, Brian, after that, we, we both looked at each other and said, "You just can't get that close. You really can't." He is the great Paul Page. The book, I'm Paul Page, it's race day in Indianapolis, and we'll have more with Paul tomorrow morning on Hearing Voices. This morning on Hearing Voices, we continue our visit with legendary race broadcaster Paul Page. Paul, your broadcasting career is well known to many, but before you were the Paul Page that we all know, your career and your life almost ended in Speedway. Tell us about the 1070 Whirlybird. First of all, it was fun. Um, I was uh, supposedly the traffic reporter, but we didn't really at that time have any traffic early 70s. Um, so what I really was, I was the straight man for Chuck Riley and Gary Todd, the morning and the afternoon drive DJs. And I had a ball with them. And uh, we just, 
especially Chuck Riley, who was awesome and God bless his soul, he's passed on us, but um, it, it was a fun thing to do. And then one day we're just flying around at the end of the day, this is in 1977, so it's after I have done my first race as the anchor, and suddenly we hear a loud cracking sound and I look over at the pilot and he gives me a weird look and but we continue on we're heading for the airport and just as we pass over the speedway we have another cracking sound and the aircraft starts down and I'm like oh, we're not auto rotating and it's because the pinion gear at the base of the main rotor shaft actually disintegrated in flight so we had no auto rotation and I'm I'm looking I mean, it's it's like nanoseconds that I'm talking about here but I'm looking at we, we're probably going to hit the Speedway High School, and that would be, you know, a horrible, horrible thing to do. Fortunately, we had just enough power to take us over the high school and dump us in the uh, in the football field just to the east of it. And uh, that, was, that was quite a moment. Uh, I had um, severe injuries uh, of my left leg. Uh, the other guys um, in the helicopter had a pilot, had a broken back. Um, and it was, well, my break was so serious, it was like six months before it actually was healed. And uh, when they, they were going to take me into surgery, they uh, they said, You're, just so you know, we probably are going to have to take that foot off. So that was that was the, the biggest touchdown that Speedway High School ever had. How about that? Paul Page visits with us this morning on Hearing Voices with Scott Watson. We are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week at whtc.com. Also, Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you access high-quality entertainment. Paul, I want to talk a little bit more about your career at WIBC. You and I have communicated off of the air about my involvement in the Caritzis incident. Talk a little bit for those that don't know. A man was held hostage for 63 hours, and you were on the scene or around it for much of it. Yeah, it's um, it, it was it was kind of serendipitous, if you, that word is appropriate. I had just stopped off at the FBI headquarters, which is what about at that time, 12th in Pennsylvania, uh, to pick up a couple buddies. We were going to lunch, and um, we get in their car, and almost right away. I mean, we haven't actually left the building yet. Comes out this this thing that a, a, a guy's holding somebody hostage downtown. And so I run, jump in my news cruiser and, and head down there. And of course, that was uh, uh, Tony Chris's holding uh, Mr. Hall um, with a shotgun wired around his wrist and around Hall's neck. And so I followed that story as best I could. We finally got out to a retirement home on the city's far west side. And for two days, I virtually stayed there. Um, watching this whole thing develop. Unfortunately, the way it developed, the uh, situation ended itself uh, without without any injuries, thank goodness. And uh, so so Tony ends up in jail, and, and he's passed now. So You mentioned earlier Chuck Riley. Who's the best broadcaster that you ever worked with? Yeah, uh, in, in terms of that style of the broadcast, uh, there, there are people I've worked with doing play-by-play that I, I view them as different, but I view them as the best, too. Um, but, yeah, I learned a lot from Chuck. We became very close friends. Um, he had a brand-new 280Z 
And, you know, that was the thing at the time. And uh, he and I were both in, in the sports car club doing rallies and, and Jim Connors. And uh, we'd meet a lot for dinner. Uh, he loved to eat as much as I do. And we, we just had a great time. Plus, we had Lou Palmer involved there. It was, uh, it was a close-knit little group of about eight people that were always together. And, and Chuck was kind of the, the centerpiece of that group. Any era, any car, any surface, best race you've ever seen? Had to be last year. Last year. Why is that? Elio winning. Though I I have to say that the 100th with uh, Rossi winning, um, it was was very cool because I knew what the strategy was. I, I figured it out that they're... They're making a run for the race, and the other guys are probably going to have to stop because they've burned a little too much fuel down. And I said said that to the guys off the air. I said, "You got to keep an eye on Rossi." And they kind of looked at me like he's nine. You know, what are you thinking? And so a little bit later, I was on the air, and I said that we have to keep an eye on Rossi. And then of course, everybody in front of him did it. He took the lead and ran out of fuel on the last lap. Um, and I think he crossed the line at a blistering 134 miles an hour. So uh, the big thing was whether or not Carlos Munoz would catch up to him uh, on that last lap. And it was very likely that he would, but he did not. So that was, that was pretty cool, too. He is the great Paul Page, generous with his time. And tomorrow we will have one more day with Paul. We'll play Word Association tomorrow morning on Hearing Voices. This morning on Hearing Voices with Scott Watson, we wind up our visit with legendary broadcaster Paul Page. The new book is called... Hello, I'm Paul Page. It's race day in Indianapolis. And today, like we do with many of our better-known guests, Paul, we're going to play word association. I'll give you a name. Oh, no. Give me a few thoughts about them. I know I'll blow this, but let's try. (laughs) Let's start with Tony Holman. Tony Holman was absolute gentleman. Um, he was never overwhelming. He, he was your friend. Um, he would run his business meetings in exactly the same way. He never actually would give a command. He would just say, wouldn't it be nice if this or that would happen? And of course it, it would happen. Um, but he, he, he totally loved that race. And he felt it was a big party for everybody in Indiana. That's the way he generally approached it. Uh, so he, he's a great sportsman and great man. And I'm, I miss him to this day. Anthony Joseph Foyt, Jr. Uh, there is one hard-headed Texan. Dan Gurney. <laughs> he's not listening. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, um, he's just tough. Um, and everything he pretty much does in life, I mean, he's going to make it happen, and he's going to make it happen his way. And that's not new news, I don't think, for anybody. But beneath all of that, there's an amazing large heart. He is—he has taken care of so many drivers and drivers' families quietly, anonymously, uh, throughout uh, throughout his career. That uh, and people don't know that. Um, and he actually has a, a really good sense of humor, except you may not want to be the brunt of it because it's, again, very uh, bold Texas style. 
couple of drivers folks may not be familiar with, Dan Gurney. Uh, Dan Gurney was a beautiful human being. He actually uh, uh, did did play the analyst role in uh, a race with me once. And, uh, you know, he was, I don't think people generally realize how instrumental he was in the 500, the development of the uh, more powerful V8 engines and everything. And he was at the same time this great international figure. But you get around Dan and he was just cordial. He's always smiling. Uh, he enjoyed his life. And it, therefore, if you were around him, you were enjoying it too. Jim Herdebees. Uh, Robin Miller's favorite driver. And in a way, one of my favorites. Uh, again, because of the era in which I'm coming in, uh, in the you know the six in sixty, and here's here's Jim, um, really doesn't have the greatest support in the world. I mean, it's a good car and everything, but then then the big deal was the 150 mile an hour lap, which meant a one minute at the track, a one minute to make one lap, and he came within like a couple of hundreds. 149, I think, point zero five six as I think was the number, if I remember, something in the 149 range. And it came out of nowhere, and it didn't come on the first day of qualifying. So here's this blindingly fast guy starting in the middle of the field. Uh, Jim, too, as a, as a human being, uh, he loved what he was doing, uh, loved every minute of it. Um, and... When you saw him, especially once when he was burned, he the, the story goes that he had the doctors uh, put his hands in a position of grabbing a steering wheel so he could drive. Um, and there, there was just another guy, a guy with the passion and, of course, a sense of humor. When you're putting a car in the line and keep moving it to the back, and finally when the when the final gun sounds, he opens up the hood on this thing, and um, there's nothing but cold beer in the car. He's sponsored by Miller. Tom Carnegie. Tom, you you want to talk truly iconic? That's that's Tom. Tom started out almost literally at the beginning of the Tony Holman era. Um, I have never heard a PA announcer that was as good and understood what the PA was all about as Tom Carnegie. He, um, he would, he would tell me, for example, I, I, we got to be fairly close and, um, he would, he, one, one day we're just talking in general and he said, you know, you know what I do if the crowd is, um, is really kind of quieting down, and but the race has not got much going. I said, no, what do you do? I said, all I have to do is say, where's Mario? <laughs> the crowd would come to it. He said, I had no idea where Mario was. I just knew if I'd say that, it would get everybody's attention. <laughs> so, but he, he understood how important silence is in both broadcasting and especially in PA. And uh, I was asked if I wanted to be part of the PA and when I was asked my answer was no because it's an entirely different skill that I'm accustomed to now since then I've been kind of working on it so if an invitation comes again I'm you know be more than happy to be part of that but uh, uh, Tom just a beautiful human being and um, the most 
the most skilled public address guy by far that I've ever heard. We wind up with the great Paul Page this morning on Hearing Voices with Scott Watts in the book. Hello, I'm Paul Page, and it's race day in Indiana. It is available at Barnes & Noble, also at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway gift shop. We're finishing up word association with the iconic guest today, Sid Collins. Sid, Sid had a dream, and he made it come true. And his dream of broadcasting the Indianapolis 500 live globally was an impossibility when he did it. Um, you know, we didn't have satellites to beam the signals around the world. Um, engineering was really at a you know we're total vacuum tube, and uh, and and very complicated. And to get the from the turns to the uh, to the control room, and have an amplifier and an engineer at the turn, and then one in the broadcast booth. And there weren't enough engineers, there weren't enough announcers to do that. So Sid came up with a scheme where he used people from every station in town, and they all in turn carried the 500 mile network, and um, he made it happen. And it really shouldn't have happened. Um, it was far too complex to do at that time. But Sid came up with that idea and he stuck with it. And Sid as an individual, very, very powerful guy. Uh, he was subtle about it. Um, he, was, he was also like, um, well, he was always like dressed to the nines and, and uh, very, very careful on how he comported himself and what he would say. But he just kept beating on that door and created that radio network and uh we were all the better for it obviously as a as a personal friend i loved the guy he he took care of me he taught me uh he'd rip me apart when i do something wrong um so we got to be very very close friends obviously and uh, um god bless him wibc's voice of news fred heckman your former boss <laughs> fred. Fred was a news director, of course, at WIBC, and uh, um, he, he was, first of all, he, he was a hard-hitting journalist, um, and he, I was taught journalism by Fred, and he was like, if you're in the sales department, don't even think of coming in the newsroom. You know, you, we're here to cover hard news, and we did, and we were, we were very, very good at it. We had a great staff, you know, with Tom Cochran, Virgil Napier, uh, um, uh, a number of passed passed through that newsroom. But when Fred hooked on to something, the Kritzer's situation being one, uh, they had come to me in the uh, evening, early evening, and said, uh, we need you to help us. Uh, he, he wants to talk to somebody other than the police, and preferably a broadcaster. And I said, no, everything I've been taught says I don't get involved in that. And, and, I, and I stood on that. But uh, I went to sleep for a while, and I wake up, I turn WIBC on, and there's Fred on the air with her. It's just, the language was, woo! <laughs> but um, Fred did that, and he, I think he helped the situation immensely. Um, my favorite Fred Eklund story, though, is... One, one year, um, well, when, when President Nixon was about to resign, 
Uh, one trait that Fred had was on big news events, he'd wander around and bump into everybody and just essentially get in the way. Um, and we had developed the technique on election night so that Lou could do his job where we would distract Fred and, and get him some way. But now the president's going to resign. And he, I mean, he's all over it. He's, and he's in the way everywhere. I'm not saying this to be critical of him. It was his personality. And the guys came to me and they said, Paul, we, we got to do something. We, we're not going to be able to cover this with Fred here. And so I thought about it. And I went into his, his little office and I closed the door behind me and I gave him a very serious look. And I said, Fred, you are the news director of one of the most prestigious radio stations in the world. Your place is in Washington. I'd already arranged the tickets. I talked to the congressional office. Everything was set for him. He was out that door in a half hour and we were able to do the broadcast well. And of course, Fred just got the, it was one of the great moments of his life too, to be there during all that. Two more as we wind up with Paul Page. Tell us about Tom Binford. I really like Tom. Uh, and, and Tom was, was always very helpful to me, uh, even before he became the chief steward of the 500. Um, as the chief steward, he, um, he did a couple of things that um, made us wonder. Um, one was the year when he had and his rule was you can't go below the white line, and guys did it, and they got penalized. And But Tom brought kind of an orderly sense back to things, uh, taking over from Harlan Bengler. It, it, it was part of that whole USAC eventually becoming part and whatever after deal. And, and um, Tom was, you know, he's a big banking guy, well-known, uh, well-respected, and he kind of set the, sh the ship back on its course. Um, I, I, to this day, disagree that when he when he decided to do with regard to Mario Andretti and Bobby Unzer and declare a different winner the next morning after that race, when the, when the winner declared was uh, Mario, and then we had to go through a six-month uh, uh, administrative trial session to finally get the real answer on who won the 500, and it turned out to be Bobby. I, I always felt, and I feel to this day, you, it, it, the race has to happen in front of the crowd. You can't go changing thing after that. If you're gonna penalize somebody where it's a major impact, you have to do it right there, or immediately thereafter. But you, 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 can't, you, you can't have a winner that the public doesn't see how it all went. And that was our one big difference of opinion. But he, he was very helpful to me in my career. And finally, and I asked, this one was not written down, but my friend Catherine Connolly would kill me if I didn't ask it, Mario Andretti. <laughs> I laugh every time I think of Mario. He's, he is, um, he loves life. I mean, he's a, a gregarious Italian and, um, well, I, I tease him and say, you know, when you were born, that, that, you weren't really born in Italy. It wasn't Italy at the time. Um, and, of course, he comes right back at me for that one. But um, I, I spent a lot of time with Mario. Uh, one day uh, it was supposed to be a, a test day at the Speedway, and it rained, and Mario and I just got in a rental car. And he started driving laps and telling me stories and showing me little things like at the time, 
um, he came off at turn four and the wall actually had a little a little change of about six inches. Um, and, and it was a notch that started that change. And Mario would say, if you really are going fast, you almost get your tire all the way up in that notch. And um, I, I enjoy him. Um, when he had his pig, it was great. <laughs> and he's, he's so full of life and he is the absolute dead perfect ambassador for uh, IndyCar, which is what he is doing now. And I, I think he's amazing. I always have. And uh, I once was asked who was the greatest driver uh, ever and, and was offered Foyt and Mario. And I said, wait, well, Daytona 500, Formula One champion, Indy 500 champion, it's got to be Mario. For three generations, he has been the link between the rest of us and racing. He is the iconic Paul Absolutely. Page. Thanks for the visit this morning on Hearing Voices. Thank you. I really appreciate the time.